0: Today we begin a new series uh, called New Testament Survey. And the intention of this series is just to carry us through the summer months. We're going to be traveling through uh, Paul's, basically Paul's letters um, in the New Testament. And so each week we'll cover a different one of Paul's letters in the New Testament. Today we're going to start with the book of Colossians. Before I jump to that, I just want to point out very quickly um, the set that you see and all the work that was done Uh, Dina and Tammy and then she had a crew of people that came in and helped paint and things and uh, the intent of our VBS here at Hebron is to take students back to the biblical time period. We're trying to emphasize to them and we do this through our curriculum on Sunday mornings in Sunday school that the Bible is real history. This is not a book of myth. This is not a book of fairy tale but it is actually a historical book of real events Real people, real places, and so through our Sunday school curriculum, through our VBS, we make sure that we emphasize not nothing wrong with roller coaster themes and VBS, but we want to emphasize the historical uh, backdrop of the Bible to to, to uh, so that students are um, affirm that this is real history that they're learning. Um, anyhow, that was my little soapbox moment there. But uh, so let's, let's look at Colossians together. We're going to read Colossians chapter 2, if you would. I know you just sat down. Please stand back up for the scriptures. We're going to read Colossians chapter 2, verses 10 through 14. Colossians chapter 2, verses 10 through 14, and then we'll dive in deep from there. Okay, let's begin with verse 10. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature. Not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, and raised with Him through your faith in the power of God, who raised Him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations, That was against us, and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. You may be seated. I know you read through that, and you were like, "Gordon, I didn't get any of that." Well, we're going to work our way through the letter to the Colossians, uh, but first of all, and toward those verses. But first of all, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about who are these people uh, of of the Colossians that the Bible refers to as the Colossians. Well, we've got a map for you that'll help uh, give us some orientation to it. And uh, Colosse was located in central Turkey. You can see kind of the big word Colosse there. It's a town called Colosse. That's why we call them the Colossians. And so um, this is a group of people that Paul is writing the letter to, living there in central Turkey. And there was a group of churches that formed kind of a semicircle around Ephesus. Ephesus was a major city for the Roman people. It was a place where a lot of goods were coming and going. It was a very important city, a lot of soldiers coming and going through that territory. And so there's a group of cities that formed a semicircle around Ephesus, which was a port city of the Aegean Sea on the eastern shore of the Aegean Sea there. And so Colossae, just inland from that. Um, these seven cities were uh, what the book of Revelation refers to in Revelation chapter 3, um, where John is writing this letter to these seven churches that form that semicircle around Ephesus. And interestingly enough, there's a city that's referred to called Laodicea, but Colossae is not referred to as one of the, one of the cities of, of, uh, of Revelation chapter 3. However, Colossae and Laodicea are situated right next door. They're neighbors, neighboring towns. Uh, to one another, and so we might think of Colossae as a part of whatever Laodicea was experiencing. Now, Paul wrote to this letter to the Colossians in the year 62 A.D., and he wrote this. He writes this letter from jail. He's in prison. He's waiting for his time to go before Emperor Nero to have his case heard, and he's in jail, in chains, in Rome, waiting for um, for his trial, and uh, so. The interesting thing is, though, Paul did not start this church in the city of Colossae. Um, Actually, it was started by another gentleman, a fellow by the name of Epaphras. Listen to what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 1. He writes, I want you to know how much I am struggling for you, for those at Laodicea, and for all those who have not yet or have not met me personally. So Paul is saying to the church, I know that you all have not met me before. Um, And however he's writing this letter to them, the point is, the people in Colossae don't know who Paul is. They've never had a face-to-face encounter with him. They've just heard about him, heard about some of his teachings, and have responded to the gospel. So the question then is, how did the people in Colossae, if Paul's never been there, how did they hear about Jesus? How did they get the news about the gospel? Well, Paul tells us, chapter 1 and verse 6 of the letter. He says, all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as, as it has been doing among you since the day that y'all heard it and understood God's grace and all its truth. Verse 7, you learned it from who? Epaphras. That's right, Epaphras, this guy uh, that came there and shared the gospel with them. Now, who is Epaphras? Well, Epaphras was a guy who came to where Paul was in Ephesus. Paul had a what we call a honeybee strategy of evangelism. He hunkered down in the city. Can go back to our map for a second. He hunkered down in the city of Ephesus, with all these cities semicircled around him, and so he would allow people to come and go. He spent about three years in Ephesus, and as people would come and go, soldiers, merchants, trade folks, uh, sailors, all sorts of people coming and going through the port city of Ephesus, and he would share the gospel with them. They would come to faith in Christ, and then his intention was he would pollinate them with the gospel, and then they would go back to their hometown, to where they were from, and they would share the gospel with the people there. And this is exactly what happens with Epaphras. He comes to Colossae. He meets the Apostle Paul. He responds to the gospel. He puts his faith and trust in Jesus. He goes back to his hometown of Colossae, shares the gospel with his hometown folks. A church is formed there. Same thing with Laodicea. A church is formed there, and so that's how those churches heard about and responded to the gospel. Now, what about the letter itself? That's kind of who it's written to and some of the background, but what about the letter itself? Well, the letter to the Colossians, along with three other letters form what we know as the prison epistles. And they are in the order that you see there in the Bible, where it begins with Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And these are all letters that Paul wrote while he was in prison, or under house arrest in Rome, waiting for his time to go before Nero in 62 AD. And these letters tend to break down, all these prison epistles tend to break down into two very defined sections. The first of the sections is where Paul does some theological discussion, where he treats some theological subject matters. And then the second section of these prison epistle letters is where Paul deals with some more practical, everyday Christian living type of, uh, of situations, type of things. And so what we want to do is, is ask, well, what is the theological issue that Paul is dealing with in the letter of Colossians? Because Colossians actually divides very neatly right down the middle at the end of chapter 2 with a theological session or section followed by a practical se- section. And so uh, what we learn in Colossians chapter 2 is that Epaphras has come to Rome, and he's there to visit Paul while he's in, under house arrest, while he's in chains. And so he reported to Paul that there were some concerns that he had about the church back in Colossae, about the churches in, in Laodicea, and that there, his concern is that there were uh, there was some false understanding about who Christ was, that the teachings about who Christ was, uh, people were starting to think, well, maybe Christ was created. Maybe Christ was not uh, who, who we, this whole deal with him being God in the flesh, and so there were some questions going on, and so Paul writes this letter, the first two chapters of it, to deal with the issue of the question of the person of Christ, or rather, of the deity of Christ. Now we just talked last Sunday, if you missed it, I'd encourage you to go online and listen to the sermon from last Sunday. We talked about the Jehovah's Witnesses who go around teaching that Jesus was not God in the flesh, and we have the Mormons out there that do the same thing, and so this idea that there are questions about the person of Christ is not something new to the 19th or 20th or 21st centuries, rather it's something that's been going on throughout Christendom, all the way back here at the very beginning as Christianity is getting formed, and Yeah, informed, not informed, formed. And so Paul is writing to address this issue about who is Jesus and the deity of Christ. And Paul tells us five very important things about the person of Christ. In fact, Colossians chapters 1 and 2. Everybody with me? I know it's just like lecture up here today. But anyhow, just hang with me. You know, we'll come around to it. Um, So... But the the point is that um, that the letter of Colossians, chapters 1 and 2, form the most comprehensive teaching about the person of Christ, about the deity of Christ, of any other place in Scripture. And so that's kind of what we want to zero in on want to focus on this morning. And so Paul gives us five very important things to know about the person of Christ. The first thing that he teaches us is that Christ is God in the flesh. He says, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, he says that he is the visible image of of the invisible God he says Colossians chapter 1 and verse 19 for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus in the body of Jesus and Colossians 2 and verse 9 for in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form that is that Jesus Christ as he walked on this earth was God in the flesh and this is Part of the understanding of the Trinity that we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are three, and yet they are one. One God. And the part of the Godhead that appears in human flesh is none other than Jesus himself. And he walked on the earth, and that's what Paul is writing to affirm here. That he is God in human flesh. All the fullness of deity dwells, he says, in Jesus in bodily form. I mean, you can't get more clearer than that right so next time it was funny because somebody came to me this morning and said you'd never believe who came knocking on my door this past week (laughs) jehovah's witnesses come on it was funny so but this is why hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 says the sun is the radiance of god's glory and the exact representation of his being the exact representation of god himself The word that is representation there comes from the Greek word hypostasis. Hypostasis means essence. It means literally that this is the nature of God. This means that it is the intrinsic nature. And so this verse is telling us that Jesus is the exact representation of God himself in bodily form. Got it? Okay. All right. Just making sure. Now, a lot of us have heard of the Council of Nicaea before, and there was a creed that came out of the Council of Nicaea. Let me give you that back to our map for just a second. You can see at the top of the map, there's the Black Sea. At the northern coast of Turkey, along the Black Sea, is the town of Nicaea. It's actually not on that map, but it's in that area. But uh, so anyhow, so there's this. So uh, in 325, a guy by the name of Constantine, he was the emperor of Rome, and he became a Christian uh, before 325. But he made Christianity the official uh, religion of the Roman Empire. And in 325, there were some questions about the deity of Christ: Is he really God in the flesh? Again, Paul had dealt with this. The churches were dealing with these questions. We're still dealing with this today through these cults that we've got operating in America and other parts of the world. Uh, it's a question that's always been around, and so they wanted to codify, they wanted to put in writing a statement that the, of the church that who, who Jesus is. And so one of the things that they said was they dealt with the deity of Christ here. And so I just want to share with you real quickly uh, what they wrote, and I'm, just, I'm cutting this up a little bit, just give you little snippets. But here's what they wrote to codify uh, in writing about the deity of Christ, just affirming what Paul's saying here in Colossians 1 and 2. They wrote, We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God of gods, light of light, true God of true God, that is, of the essence of the Father. That is, that Jesus is of the essence of the Father. Jesus himself said in John chapter 14 and verse 9, he said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. He said in John chapter 10 and verse 30, he said, I and the Father are one. We are one. We are the same. And so what the Nicene Creed is attempting to affirm is that Jesus and God the Father are of the exact same substance, the exact same nature as one another. Second thing that Paul was talking about here in Colossians 1 and 2 in his identification of the person of Jesus, of who Jesus is, first of all, he says that Jesus is God. That was a long one, by the way. They're going to get a little shorter, so hang with me. Um, So he says that Jesus is God in the flesh. Second of all, he says that Jesus is the creator of the universe. Colossians 1 and verse 16, he says, For by him, by Jesus, all things were created, both things in heaven and on earth, both things that are visible, we can see, and things that I don't see, right? The invisible stuff, I mean, that pretty much covers everything, right? He's saying he, by him, all of these things are created. Somebody really liked that. But I think I'm seeing some chuckles. But in any case, and so he says all things were created by him and for him. And this goes along with John chapter 1 and verse 3, where the Bible says, and by him all things have been made. Without him nothing has been made. So here again we have another powerful affirmation of the deity of Christ. If you go back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we learn that God created everything, the world. And here we have the Bible saying in Colossians chapter 1, saying that god that jesus created everything so if god created everything in genesis 1 2 and it said jesus created everything then who is jesus the answer is he's god that's right okay just make sure we got that all right because the third thing that paul says y'all are like gordon you're fired up this morning i didn't even have any coffee i'm not sure what's going on but anyhow so the third thing that he tells us is in colossians 1 and 2 about the person of jesus first he tells us that he's the Jesus, that He is God in bodily form. Second, that He is the Creator, and the third thing He says is that Jesus is the Owner of the universe. Colossians one and verse 6, 6, sixteen says, "All things were created by Him and for Him." Now, right now, our world is in open rebellion against the ownership of Jesus of this world. Our world is in open rebellion against the lordship of Jesus. Of this world. But don't you worry about that. Because one of these days, Jesus is going to return back to the earth. He's going to claim his church. And uh, the Bible says that when that happens, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the owner. That Jesus is. Lord. So Paul tells us here in Colossians chapters 1 and 2 in his theological treatment that Jesus is, first of all, God in bodily form. Second of all, that Jesus is the creator of everything. And thirdly, that he is the owner of everything. And then fourthly, he tells us that Jesus, not only does Paul say he's the creator and all those other things, but also that he is the upholder of the universe that he created. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17 says... He is before all things, and in him, Jesus, all things hold together. All things hold together. Who holds the protons and the neutrons and the electrons and the quarks and all those sorts of things together? It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who holds the physical universe and all that's in it together. The Bible says that Jesus does this. It says that Jesus does it by his word. By the word of his power, he doesn't even have to lift a finger. He just speaks things, and they happen. That's all that's required. Finally, number five, he tells us that Jesus is God in bodily form. He tells us that Jesus is the creator of the universe, that Jesus is the owner of the universe, that Jesus is the upholder of the universe. And finally, number five, that Jesus is the redeemer of all mankind. The redeemer of all mankind. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 14, Paul says, It's in Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, it's very important that we understand the means by which Jesus purchases our redemption. The means by which Jesus brings us back into a right relationship with him. Colossians 1 and verse 20, Paul goes on to say, Jesus made peace for us with God through his blood that was shed on the cross. The way that we get back into a right relationship with God. Is not because of Jesus' teachings. It's not because of Jesus' healings, It's not because of Jesus' miracles. It's not because of his philosophy or because of his morality. The way that we get back into a right relationship with God the Father. Is through the blood that Jesus shed on the cross. And it's important for us to point out at this point. That not all of mankind gets to get back into a right relationship with God. You have to receive what Jesus did on the cross. You have to petition him to forgive you of your sins. You have to turn to the work that Jesus did on the cross and appropriate it to your own life by asking him to forgive you of your sins, asking him to come and live in your heart, to wash your heart clean, recognizing that you have a sin problem that you cannot fix and that only Jesus' blood can fix. There's no other way to get to heaven. There's no other way to get into a right relationship with God again but through the blood of Jesus. All right, let's summarize what we've talked about so far. In the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul gives us the most concise teaching about the person of Christ in all of Scripture. Number one, that Jesus is God himself in bodily form. Number two, that Jesus is the creator of the universe. Number three, that Jesus is the owner of the universe. Number four, that Jesus is the upholder of the universe. And number five, that Jesus is the redeemer of those members of mankind that turn to him for the forgiveness of their sins. Now, whew, I might need to take a seat here in a minute. But that's as far as we want to go with our theological treatment of this text and with, of Colossians. And so that means it's time for us to ask the most important question, right? The practical question, which is, what difference does all this make to my life? By the way, there's going to be a pop quiz after church today. And so we just want to ask, well, what difference does all this make to you and I? You say, Gordon, hypostasis, hypostasis. I don't know what in the world that exactly was. I remember you talking about it. But I mean, I appreciate all that this morning, but what difference does that make to me? Well, there's one more amazing verse in here, and we read it at the start, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 10. And here's what Paul writes, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 10. He writes, and you have been given fullness in Christ. Now, I like how some of the other translations dealt with this. They say you've you've been made complete in Christ. That is, there's, when, you re, when you petition Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, there's nothing else to do. It's done. Complete. You don't have to bring anything to the table. You don't, you don't have to bring your philanthropy and your good works and your recycling and your, and your helping out with the homeless shelter. You don't have to bring any of that to the table in hopes of gaining God's favor or in hopes of God allowing you to get into heaven. What Jesus did, you've been through the bloody shed on the cross, you have been made complete. When you receive what Jesus did, appropriate it to your life by asking him to forgive you and wash your heart clean, it's done, it's been made complete. We're complete in Christ, why? Well, because Colossians 2 and verse 11 said, Jesus circumcised our hearts. Friends, circumcision was a sign, circumcision was a sign that that person had joined the people of God. And it meant that you were as in the family as you could possibly be, that you were a part of the family of God. We're also complete in Christ because Colossians 1 and 20 says that Jesus reconciled us to God. We're complete in Christ because Colossians 1 and 20 also says Jesus made peace between us and God the Father through the blood he shed. We're complete in Christ, Colossians 2 and verse 13 says, when we were dead in our sins, Christ made us spiritually alive. And we're also complete in Christ, Colossians 2 and 13 says, because he forgave us of all of our sins. And because Colossians 2 and verse 14 says, Jesus canceled our debt that we owed a holy God by nailing that debt to the cross. And we are complete in Christ, Colossians 2 and verse 12 says, he raised us up to eternal life. And because Colossians 1 and 27, he put himself inside of us, that is the hope of glory in the person of the Holy Spirit. And may I add, one of all Paul's other letters, Ephesians 1 and verse 13 through 14, he says that the indwelling Holy Spirit is our seal for the day of redemption. That word sealed in the Greek is referring to the brand that a person would put on an animal. Now, why do we brand an animal? So that when anybody shows up in the field and sees that animal branded or maybe your animal wanders off from the fenced in area, they're like, oh, I know where that animal belongs. I know who that animal belongs to. And so Jesus said and so the Bible says that God, through the Holy Spirit, has branded us through the Holy Spirit so that when any angel, when any seraphim, when any cherubim, even the demons, even Satan himself, look at us, he can say, hey, you know what? That joker right there is branded of God, belongs to God, is a child of God. We've been made complete. There's nothing more that we need to do or to offer. Do you understand why the Bible says in him, in Jesus, we as his followers have been made complete. We have been reconciled, brought back into a right relationship with God. We've been made spiritually alive. Our sins are. Forgiven the debt that was between us and God has been canceled. We have eternal life. Christ Himself, through the Holy Spirit, lives inside of us. We are branded as God's property. When it comes to our redemption in Christ, friends, there are no missing pieces, there are no unanswered questions. It is done, it is finished. We have been made complete in Christ. When it comes to our redemption in Christ, we are complete in him amen that's great that's good stuff um i don't mind saying so myself i was uh talking to a guy yesterday a pastor and he was he was he was a missionary in germany for about a dozen years or so and uh i was asking him i said well that's interesting Uh, you spent all that time in germany i said how are things going in germany with the christian church and he said not so good and i said well what were you doing over there he said well i was a missionary i was planting churches I was like, Well that's good, they need them. And I said, you know, Germany is the bastion of theological liberalism is really what Germany has become. I mean, it's been that way for decades. And he said, I know. He said the state of the church in Germany is is, is horrible. He said they become so liberal. He said, I went to a church conference, um, just to see what the state church was up to and I went to a church conference a gathering of clergy from around the country. And he said the theme of the conference on a big giant banner as you walk through the door was all roads lead to God. Uh That's the Christian church saying that in Germany. And I thought to myself, wow, those people are they've lost the gospel. They're no longer focused on Jesus. Paul says we've been made complete in Jesus got people over here saying oh there's all kinds of ways paul's saying no it's through jesus and jesus alone because of who he was so let me close with a question and my question is how about this issue of being passionately in love with jesus that's what paul's driving at he's reminding he's correcting theological error he's dealing with He's also pointing people toward Christ and saying, let's be passionately in love with Jesus. Remember, the Christian life is not about trying to win the approval of God. The Christian life is about winning or is about being passionately in love with Jesus. For example, why do I work hard at my job? Well, because I love Jesus and I want to please Jesus. He told me to do everything heartily. Unto the Lord. Why do I obey my boss at work? Well, Jesus told me to be obedient and submissive to authorities, And I want to please Jesus because I'm passionately in love with him. Why do I want to share the gospel with people? Why do I want to tell people about Jesus? Well, because I want to please him. I love him. And he told me to do this. He said to go into all the world and teach and preach the gospel. Why am I faithful to my family and to my spouse? Well, I do it. Because I'm passionately in love with Jesus. He told me to live this way. And so I want to live this way. Folks, everything in our life should flow out of one simple motivation. And that is that I am passionately in love with Jesus. Doing everything I do to please him. And so we need to ask ourselves the question, are we passionately? Jesus you know I had to ask myself that question this past week am I passionately in love with Jesus Uh, you go over to Revelation chapter 3 and you read about the church in Laodicea which is right next door to Colossians and what's the problem they're having they've lost their first love they've lost their passion for Jesus and so I had to ask have I cooled off And so I honestly had to get on my knees and repent and say, Lord, I'm not as passionate about you as I have been at other times in my life. And God, I want to correct that. And so I need to ask you all the same question. As followers of Christ, are you passionately in love with Jesus? And if the answer is my passion has faded, then do what Jesus said to do. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 5, he said, Repent and get back to doing the things that you did at first. So I'm here to call you, friends, not to religious activity, not to focus on church attendance. I hope you enjoy church. I want you to come to church. I want you to put some focus on church attendance. But I don't want you to think that by punching your card here every week that somehow you're going to show up in heaven with your attendance card and say, God, accept me. Because God said, I don't accept you on that basis. I don't accept you because you were moral. I don't accept you because you were good. I don't accept you because you helped others. I don't accept you because you punched your card on church on Sunday. I accept you because of Jesus. And so I ask you this morning, are you passionately in love with Jesus? If not, repent, repent, and get back to doing the things that you did at first. We do the things we do because we love Jesus. And I hope that will be why we as a church do the things that we do. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for a fresh reminder of who you want to be in our life, of the role that you want to occupy. You want to be first priority. You want to be number one. You want to be who we are most passionate about. So many other things, Lord, crowd out your place in our life. God, there's nothing wrong with enjoying life, with having goals. But Lord, you've got to be first. And so, Lord, we just ask in the quietness of this time of communion that if our love for you has faded, that it would be revived in our hearts, say God I want to correct that I want to do everything I do because I'm passionately in love with Jesus Lord stir in our hearts this morning we pray these things in Christ's holy name